I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another episode in Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I am Page, your caffeine imbued host, and as usual, here's my coffee. And the angels sang in the beginning coffee, and lo, it was very good. Well, today we're going to take a break from doing a chapter in the Bible. It's my favorite time of year. This is the Christmas season. And every year it seems that God gives me one thought about Christmas to mull over and ponder. You know, several years back, it was about the importance of family. My mother and my eldest brother had passed away within two weeks of each other. And those events brought into focus how important my family was to me. That was then. Since then, I've taken the week before Christmas to add to my thoughts about Christmas. I'm busy and I'm running around throughout the year taking care of uh, providing for my wife and myself, family. But when the Christmas season comes around, it just gives me a chance to pause and to ponder and to think. So I have decided for about the past 10 years or so to take the week before Christmas and pick a thought. Think that thought, mull it over. And since then, I've picked new thoughts. (laughs) And I'm I'm starting to consolidate all of that now. And I have found a particular joy in reserving the week before Christmas to think my Christmas thoughts. I could do it throughout the entire year. But there's something special about this season for me that brings things into focus in a way that just aren't as in focus the rest of the year. So it's that time of year again. It's the Christmas season. It's the week before Christmas. And I find it's time to start thinking my Christmas thoughts. I'm thinking about Mary, thinking about the shepherds, thinking about the Magi. And most importantly, the question, why all of this? Why is this important to me? Why Is this important to the world that I live in? So just to give you a heads up for this pre-Christmas week, episode one is gonna be about Mary, and that's today. Episode two, we're gonna talk about the Magi. Episode three, we're gonna talk about the shepherds. Now, why didn't I put the shepherds before the Magi? Because that's how it is in the order of things. Well, procrastination is my best friend and I'm not done with my essay on the shepherds yet. So they're going to be third. Episode four, or day four, if you will, 
why is Christmas important to me? Just why? And this isn't going to be me preaching to you about why Christmas should be important to you. This is me talking about Christmas and its importance to me. This podcast is all about me. This podcast is me thinking with my mouth open. Um, in Psalms 1, and I've shared this before, you know, blessed is a man who delights in the law of the Lord. He's going to be like a tree planted by streams of living water. That's what this is all about. And I'm bringing all my focusing powers in on this one subject, Christmas. So day one, Mary. Day two, the Magi. Day three, the Shepherds. Day four, why is Christmas important to me? And day five, no ruminating, no commentary. I'm just going to read the Christmas story. And that will take us up to a couple days before Christmas. And then I'm going to take a vacation. And then I will return the day after Christmas where we will pick up our story in the Old Testament. All right. All right. Good. Having said that, let's get started. Day one of my Christmas Chronicles, or maybe I can say that in a more pretentious voice. Let us begin with Mary. Yes. Or as I like to say, in my most pretentious tone of voice, day one of my Christmas Chronicles. Let's talk about Mary. Now, the following thoughts on Mary can be found in a treatise I wrote several years ago, in fact, about 10 years ago, titled A Protestant Ponders Mary, A New Look at the Christmas Story. You can find it on Amazon for a dollar, or you can get it free from Kindle. Just search on my name, Paige Garwood, or the title, A Protestant Ponders Mary. Now, I'm not going to lie here. I've made fun of my Catholic brethren over the years. I've debated with them about many things, but today I'm going to tip my hat a bit and join them in one aspect of their view of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was an amazing woman. I'm going to be using a part from the Bible, a book titled The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim, an Episcopalian minister of Jewish heritage. He wrote this book in 1883, and it is a harmony of the Gospels framed within the context of Jewish customs and culture. It's a fascinating reference, shedding light on many aspects of the Gospels. I'll be drawing primarily from chapter 6 of volume 1 called The Nativity of Jesus the Messiah. All biblical references will be, unless otherwise specified, will be from the Reformed Study Bible, published by Ligonier Ministries. Excellent, excellent study Bible. I'll be making use of one other resource, and this one was new to me when I first began thinking about Mary. This is a subjective resource, that of my own life experience as a husband, a father, and a grandfather. Um, I'm 67 years old now. When I wrote this originally, I was 57. I'm now 67. As a husband, it gives me insight into what Joseph must have dealt with when he decided to take Mary as his wife. I know what it's like to be in love with a woman. I know what it's like to be promised in marriage and have a woman promised in marriage to me. I know what it's like to be willing to give up everything for the love of that one woman. 
So I can, I can look into Joseph's life a little bit and I can identify with him from a very subjective human point of view. I'm also a father, which gives me a little bit of an insight into what it must have been like, not just for Joseph to be the father of a very special child, but a little bit of insight into perhaps Mary's father, because I'm a father. I can imagine the feelings that would be rushing through my heart and soul if my 14-year-old daughter had come home saying she was pregnant. I I have insight into that. You see, I know that the culture then is different than the culture now, but human nature has never changed from day one. So a very valuable resource are my personal experiences, which just gives me an insight as to the humanity of the situation we're getting ready to read about. You know, people marry, people divorce, people have children, people get angry, people treat each other fairly and unfairly. Nothing has changed. So my experience as a human being, as a father and a husband, I think has bearing on how I read the story about Mary. Now here's the story. If you've ever seen any church Christmas story, any church Christmas pageant, and we perhaps have all grown up seeing one or or more, you know the essence of the Christmas story. Gabriel, the angel messenger, appears to Mary, informing her that she, betrothed to a man named Joseph, would become pregnant. She would give birth to Messiah, calling him Jesus. Find that in Luke chapter 1. Next, in most church pageants, Mary and Joseph trek to Bethlehem to answer the call of a Roman census, Bethlehem being their ancestral home. There's no room at the inn, so they end up in a stable where Mary gives birth to Jesus. That's Luke chapter 2. A host of angels then appear to shepherds, minding some flocks outside Bethlehem, and they rush into Bethlehem, finding Mary, Joseph, and the new baby. They then leave, telling their story to anyone who will listen. Luke chapter 1. Then enter the Magi. These wise men from the east follow the star that leads them to Jesus. The three wise men present their gifts. And then they leave on some camels. A choir sings handles hallelujah chorus or perhaps a soft chorus of silent night. And the curtain drops on a thoughtful yet joyous Mary and Joseph and a few sheep. Another successful Christmas pageant is completed. Now, here's the questions. I am cursed, or blessed if you will, with an inquisitive mind and an active imagination. When I read something, I tend to think of it as if it were a movie or video or something like that. I, I tend to see like a movie reel going by as I'm reading a story. As I've read the account of the Christmas birth of Messiah, the following questions bubble to the top. Why did Mary immediately leave to visit Elizabeth, an older relative, after her conversation with Gabriel? She's just been visited by an angel. And this is no little thing. In fact, the arrival of Gabriel to Elizabeth's husband a few months previous and later to Mary signaled the end of 400 silent years for Israel. God had not sent a prophet or an angel or, or a miraculous visitation of any kind for over 400 years. Certainly, 
this young Jewish whoop maiden would want to tell her family this news. Instead, she runs to Elizabeth. Why? My inquiring mind wants to know. Number two, why in the world would Joseph take a wife who's nine months pregnant on a journey to Bethlehem? Especially as Edersheim states that as Joseph's wife, she was not required to make that journey. All that was required is for Joseph to represent his family. Would it not have made more sense to leave Mary about to deliver a baby with his family in Nazareth? Because they would have moved in with his family. In those days, it was customary for a husband to bring his wife with him back to his family's home where he has added onto his parents' house. So Mary could have stayed with her mother-in-law and had the baby there in the comfort and safety of a home. So, why did you do that, Joseph? Here's another question. Why was there no room for them at Bethlehem? <laughs> Especially for a woman ready to give birth. Well, I know the simple answer is, quote, there is no room in the inn. But here goes my inquisitive little brain. Excuse me, excuse me. But isn't Bethlehem their ancestral home? The answer is yes. Is it that much of a stretch to think that surely some distant relative of Joseph or Mary lived in the area? From what I've discovered from Edersheim's book, familial hospitality was paramount in that culture. And when family comes to town, room is found. And surely room for a young mother-to-be could be found, right? But the answer to that question is simple, no. Why? Why couldn't someone open the house even if all they had was a place in front of the uh, hearth on the floor? The answer is there was no room, not just at the inn, anywhere. Why? And question four, why didn't Jesus, I'm sorry, why didn't Joseph and Mary and Jesus return home immediately after their business was concluded? It doesn't take long to get Register for a census. After Jesus is born, the shepherds show up, the magi. What needs to be realized here is that there's about one to two years gap between the shepherds' arrival and the magi's arrival. So this can be inferred from the cunning ways of Herod, which we'll read about later, who inquired of the magi when they visited him looking for the king of the Jews. And based on the information provided, it appears Joseph and Mary were still in Bethlehem one to two, possibly even three years later after the birth of Jesus. Why didn't they go back to Nazareth? Why didn't they go back home? Surely it doesn't take one to two years to register for the census. But yet they're still in Bethlehem. And after the Magi visit and depart, Joseph is warned and Her that Herod's going to do the unthinkable. He's going to try to kill Mary's child. And so he takes his new family and flees back to home. Nope. He goes to Egypt. For another length of time, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus stay away from their hometown. Why? And then there's one last question. This one deals with the other end of the story. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus gives his mother Mary into the care of his beloved disciple, John. What a heart-rending scene. But here's the elephant in the room for me. Where were Jesus' siblings? Because Mary and Joseph had other children. 
Jesus had half-brothers. James, for instance, who became a leader in the church. Where were they? What could possibly happen to this family where the eldest brother could not expect his younger brother, his younger brothers to care for their mother? Uh, how could it be possible the eldest brother, Jesus, was not able to turn the care of his mother over to his next oldest brother, next brother in the line, James? Why does Jesus have to give care of his mother to anyone other than to the next eldest sibling in the family? Hmm. Well, the key to this whole discussion is found in the sentence. It's found in Matthew chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Okay, let's get to the meat of the story. Mary is likely between 14 and 16 years of age, probably closer to 14 per customs of that day for betrothals. Now, here's what I draw on my personal life experience as a father, husband, and a teacher of middle school and high school students. Move past the enormity of the angelic visitation for a moment. It might be hard, but just move past that for a minute. The angels come, appeared, spoke to her. She's overwhelmed. Obviously, we would all be overwhelmed when angels show up. Let's visit the humanity of Mary's new situation. I can just picture in my imagination, after the conversation with Gabriel, after Gabriel has left, Mary sits down abruptly. She's pregnant. Joseph's not the father. And this in a time when adultery could be punished by stoning. You just read John's gospel for an example of this in John chapter 8. At this very moment, I'm envisioning one of my 15-year-old female students. You know, in fact, I remember one class just before Christmas break, I asked how many 14, 15-year-old girls we have in here, and most of them raised their hands because it's middle school, early high school. And I said, all right, I'm gonna ask you a hard question. An angel visits you and tells you you're gonna be the mother of Messiah. And you run to your father and you say, I'm pregnant. What would that conversation be like with your father? See, that's what Mary would have faced. I believe that because I'm a father. I had a young girl who was beautiful and who, who I loved dearly. If she'd come to me when she was 14 years old as a freshman in high school and said, Daddy, I'm pregnant. I can't even begin to tell you how hard that conversation would be. In fact, I doubt if the initial conversation would have been a pleasant one. No, I'm fairly certain I would not have been my daughter's first stop with a conversation like this. It's been my experience that in situations like this, a woman needs another woman to speak to first. And that makes, I, I don't have a problem with that because who would understand this more a guy or a gal <laughs> Mary goes to Elizabeth because the word had gotten around by this time that Elizabeth herself was having a miraculous pregnancy an angel had appeared to her husband Zacharias and she was pregnant in her elderly in her older years in my experience as a father husband and teacher I found that when a woman experiences a traumatic event 
14-year-old woman, woman finding out she's pregnant, that qualifies. Many times they seek the company of another understanding woman. And that's what Mary does. She immediately leaves to visit her older relative, Elizabeth, who herself is experiencing a miraculous birth of her own. If anyone could understand this whole angelic visitation thing, it would be Elizabeth. And I have no doubt Mary would want advice about how to navigate what's about to happen. And the deep waters she finds herself in, an engaged woman carrying a child whose father is someone other than Joseph, her betrothed. Now this brings sense to my first question as to why Mary rushed off to Elizabeth. She needed a confidant. She would have wanted confirmation that she wasn't losing her mind about Gabriel in this message. Before going any further, please know this. Again, this is conjecture on my part. And I'm drawing really heavily on my understanding of my human nature. Injecting it into the story. But this makes so much sense to me now when I think about it this way. Mary runs. Mary needed confirmation that she wasn't losing her mind. And she was probably more than a little fearful of what the future would hold. She had to have known that when she sat down in her room after Gabriel left, knowing that she was pregnant, she could not have been unaware of what that would mean to her for the rest of her life. Her life was going to change forever. And probably, honestly, not for the better. So Mary goes to Elizabeth in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy and staying for approximately three months before returning home. According to Luke chapter one, she returns home three months pregnant, baby bump starting to show. Now this marks the beginning of the new reality for Mary. I don't know if she told Joseph first or if her parents found out or she told her parents, then Joseph, or she told her parents and their parents told Joseph. I don't know. The gospel narrative is silent. But no matter how it happened, from an outsider's perspective, she runs off to visit a relative and returns three months later, three months pregnant. I know my first question would be as her father, who is the father of this child? Think about that conversation. If you're a father, think about that. What's she gonna say, God is? Nobody had heard from God for over 400 years. The priests hadn't heard from him. The scribes hadn't heard from him. Nobody had heard from God in any way, shape, or form for over 400 years. How pretentious that this 14-year-old nobody would claim to have heard from God and out of that, God made her pregnant. There was no prophet who could validate or examine her story. Her only options were to tell the truth, which no one would believe, or to say nothing, which would only provide fodder for speculation and gossip, or to lie, outright lie, perhaps saying she had been raped. I don't picture her lying. Her integrity is mentioned by Gabriel's own announcement and discussion with her, leads me to believe that lying would be beneath her. So she only has two options, tell the truth or say nothing. In any case, Mary, is doomed. And as she was for all intents and purposes the wife of Joseph, her fate was now in his hands. 
And I wonder if this is also the reason no mention is made of Mary's family in this story. The shame her pregnancy would bring in her family would be great. I cannot help but wonder if their re reaction to her pregnancy was less than forgiving. I don't know. But again, my fertile imagination can easily imagine the tension in that household. As a father, again, that would be one of the most difficult conversations I would ever have with a child. All right, so this leads us to Joseph and his response. Matthew 1 says that, tells us a few things. It says Joseph was a just man, not willing to put her to shame publicly. He wasn't willing to make a public spectacle of her apparent shameful activities. He was afraid to take her as his wife until Gabriel appeared to him, informing him of the truth of the matter. Now, this is important too. The fact that Gabriel appeared to him shows that God had a great deal of trust in Joseph to at least at first accept in faith that Mary had not been unfaithful to him and that he was going to raise a son that was not his. But the son was not the son of another man either. He was afraid to take her as his wife until Gabriel appeared informing him of the truth. This was probably more than fine with her family as this would make her Joseph's problem and remove her from her family circle. So perhaps that's why we don't read about Mary's family. Don't know, but I can imagine that would have been difficult. So immediately after Gabriel's visit with Joseph, Joseph and Mary become husband and wife. Probably a very low key wedding, but it would be obvious that she was pregnant. And if not then, at least a few months later, when she's six to nine months pregnant, when people would start, they could do the math and realize, oh my gosh, she was pregnant when Joseph married her. Mary's reputation was doomed from that point on. So why exactly did Joseph take his wife nine months pregnant on this trip to Bethlehem? Because that's the next part of the story. She's nine months pregnant and they make this 60, 70 mile hour trip to, to uh, Bethlehem. And I'm thinking she would probably would have had to ride part of that way on a donkey. This is not a comfortable trip for a nine-month pregnant woman to take. Why did he take her on this trip? Well, same core answer. Mary was pregnant with somebody else's child. And according to Edersheim, she could have stayed home, letting Joseph represent her in the census because Joseph was the only one required to represent his family. What would life have been like for Mary at home without Joseph? What if Joseph had gone on by himself and left Mary at home with her mother-in-law to help with the delivery? Well, not only was her family shamed by Mary's condition, but so would Joseph's family have been shamed by the fact that Joseph took this woman. See, from what I've read, as I peruse this story more and look more and more into the history of things, Jesus was assumed to be the illegitimate son of Mary and a Roman soldier. That was the rumor, apparently. Um, that shame would have placed her at odds with Joseph's family as well as her own. Joseph 
being the kind man that he obviously was, was not going to leave his pregnant wife in the care of a woman who was angry and shamed by Mary's apparent premarital behavior. It makes perfect sense to me for a husband to want to protect his wife from the possible vitriol of an angry mother-in-law. So Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem. So this gets me to another troubling question. They arrive in Bethlehem. Why was there no room at the inn? Well, the quick answer is the town was crowded. All rooms were taken. Here's where we have to once again look a little deeper into the humanity of the situation. In that culture and in that time, if a relative comes to town and needs a place to stay, you make room for them. If all you had to offer was a place on the floor to spread their sleeping mat, so be it. Bethlehem was the ancestral town for the lineage of David. Joseph and Mary were both of the lineage of David. There would have, at the very least, been a distant relative on either side of this marriage in and around that city. And yet, Joseph and Mary could find no room. Why? Well, think about this. There's probably six months for rumors to spread about Mary. She comes home from Elizabeth. She's three months pregnant. From that point on, everybody, there would be an expanding circle of people who would know about the faithless wife of Joseph, Mary. Why could they find no room? Because she was pregnant with a child that was not Joseph's. And there would have been tons of time for rumors to meet to reach Bethlehem. So Mary returns from her, think about this timeline. Mary returns from her visit with Elizabeth, three months pregnant. Sometime between then and the trip to Bethlehem, about six months, Joseph marries her. Joseph marries a significantly pregnant young woman. That six month window would provide plenty of time for word to spread about Mary and her quote unquote condition. You have to at least concede the possibility that one reason for their having to stay in a stable could have been the shame attached to Mary and Joseph. There is nothing so devastating nor viral as gossip and innuendo. I know this is conjecture on my part, but that's part of the charm of my podcast. I'm thinking with my mouth open here. Perhaps I'm taking too much liberty and you're free to stop listening if you want but I don't think I'm missing the mark here. So they arrive in Bethlehem and they're in a stable. Let's go back to the Christmas pageant. The shepherds come, the shepherds go. And we'll talk more about them later. Enter the Magi, the Magi come and the Magi go. And we'll talk about them later. Wait, wait, back up a second. Go back to the shepherds a second. And then the Magi. Wait. According to what I understand about um, the whole thing, and then we'll get to the Magi's, why this is important in the time element. The time with the Magi's, possibly, possibly three years later, one, two, three years later, after the birth of Jesus, they're still in Bethlehem when the Magi show up. Why is Joseph and Mary still in Bethlehem one to two years later? 
surely it doesn't take one to two years or three years to get registered for the census. Why didn't they just return home? Well, for the same reason that Joseph took Mary with him in the first place. Life at Joseph's home would not have been good for them. The wounds were still fresh. Joseph and Mary knew the truth. But to everyone else, Jesus was the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier and a Jewish maiden. According to what I've read, um, that was the rumor surrounding Mary and her child. After the Magi depart, Joseph and his family flee to Egypt for a time to escape the wrath of Herod. When they hear of Herod dying, they want to settle in Judea, but as Herod's son was ruling there, Joseph takes Mary and Jesus back to Nazareth. By now, it's been three to five years since they'd left. Perhaps things had quieted down to be tolerable for Mary. Perhaps Joseph's mother is now gone and there's no more vindictive mother-in-law so he can return home and now he is the head of the household and at least he can control those circumstances a little bit better for Mary. I could see that happening. Now, we're going to set this story aside for a second and jump forward 30 years or so. Jesus is being crucified. At the foot of the cross is Mary, his mother, several of his disciples. Jesus indicates John and he tells Mary, behold your son. In other words, this is now your son. He then tells John, behold your mother. All right. Elephant in the room time. Where were Jesus's other siblings? James, the next eldest brother. Uh, where are they? Mary and Joseph had other children. Why weren't one of them stepping forward to take care of Mary? It's customary that if the eldest son dies, then the next eldest son steps forward to take care of the mother if she's still alive. Is it possible that after the family returned to Nazareth 30 years previous, and as the other children grew up there, that they'd begun to quote unquote, learn the truth about their mother, Mary? And Jesus, is it possible that their relationship with Mary was strained in later years because of all of that? Surely they all grew up with the rumors and the whisperings about Mary and, well, you know, Jesus isn't really Joseph's son. So much so that when their eldest brother, half-brother Jesus dies, they stay away because he was proof of the shame of their mother in their eyes. Is it at least plausible that over the years they distanced themselves from Mary because of her quote-unquote sordid past? Jesus apparently knew none of them were going to step up and take care of Mary after he was gone. Do you get it? Do you see why my admiration of Mary has grown so much as I've pondered all of this? Mary had to have known some if not all, of what she was letting herself in for when she was met by Gabriel. And yet she said, according to Luke 1, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God called her to an incredible adventure. He called her to pay an incredible price. Mary was a remarkable young lady. The centerpiece of Christmas is indeed the birth of our Savior, as it should be. But Mary? Hmm. She deserves a place of honor as well. This Protestant will indeed be thinking of Mary this holiday season. The mother of our Lord sacrificed all 
to walk in obedience to God. May it be possible that I have a fraction of the courage of this young Jewish maiden named Mary when God called me to my next adventure. It's a good place to stop. Oh, God's blessings on Mary. This is Paige. It's my coffee. Folks, I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye.